The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are going to um, open our Bibles to Luke uh, chapter 7. We have been going through a, uh, a sermon series on, uh, on the personal encounters of Jesus uh, with, with uh, different people in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're calling that Redemption Face-to-Face. Um, encountering the real Jesus. And what we're doing is we're just going through all the moments in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus has um, an interaction with an individual. And we have been going through, uh, we were in Luke chapter 5 before, we kind of skipped over Luke 6, and now we're in Luke 7. And tonight we are going to be looking at this interaction between Jesus and a centurion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to read the passage, and I'm going to ask for God's help, and then uh, we will start looking at this passage together. So this is just after Jesus has done a very important sermon in his ministry, and so then Luke tells us, starting in chapter 7, verse 1, after he, that's Jesus, after Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valuable by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they had come to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our own synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Spirit, we thank you that you have given us this testimony of Jesus. We ask that as you reveal him to us, that we would love him and that we would hope in him and that we would learn of him tonight. God, help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Does anybody know uh, what it means to break the fourth wall? Does anybody know what that term means? A couple of people do. It's a theater term. If you're not in the theater, you're not going to know that. Or it's a movie term. It's a, breaking the fourth wall is when um, you have a story going on, and the characters in the story turn and address the audience, or they turn and address the camera. And it comes from the 19th century. Uh, they started doing box plays, so they'd have like three boxes. The stage would have you know, two side walls and then the back wall. And uh, whenever the, they would turn and address the audience, um, that would be breaking the invisible fourth wall. 
So it, they'd be addressing the audience. It's kind of this awkward moment where characters are in a story and everybody's kind of absorbed into the story. And then suddenly the characters turn and start addressing the audience. And it seems a bit odd because if they're in the story and they're legitimately characters in the story, they shouldn't know that it's a fictional story. But um, they turn and they address the camera. I don't know if you've, uh, I'm not recommending the movie in terms of uh, you know, skipping school, but have you ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Ferris Bueller's Day Off does this famously where he'll, he will turn and address the camera and talk about how he's getting away with um, you know, skipping school and his parents buying his sixth story and all that stuff. So it's, it's kind of an example of what it means to break the fourth wall. Um, and I think, I know that's a, maybe a bit of an odd concept in relation to Jesus, but um, I think we actually have a moment of breaking the fourth wall happening in this story here. Because what has been going on up to this point is Jesus, if you're following through the Gospel of Luke, if you're just reading through the Gospel of Luke up to this point, you would have this miraculous story about how a baby was conceived and was born and was promised to be the Messiah of a nation. And then he comes into the ground, into, into the playing field, and he's doing all these miracles, you know, doing things that nobody has ever done before. He is healing lepers. He is writing people's uh, shriveled hands. He is making men who were born lame walk again. And then, not only that, but he is claiming to forgive sins. And then he goes on to talking about this massive uh, sermon that we just kind of skipped over. It's, the, it's Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is uh, presenting what, what the grace of God's kingdom looks like. And so you could read through all of that and kind of get through it and be, you could raise the question, where, I know this is about Jesus, but where am I? Where am I in this story? Certainly we, we look at the, at the Bible and we look at these stories and we can relate with the characters and we can uh, learn about Jesus, but is there a moment in these stories where we are specifically addressed? And I think what's going on in this passage is Luke, as he is writing about Jesus, looking up from his pen and directly addressing, directly addressing us. And I want to show that to you. I, I know that might seem a bit strange, but the, the reality is that these two main characters, you have the centurion, and you have Jesus, and all through this encounter, the centurion never meets or sees Jesus. And so you have in this, this story this, this element that we can relate to because we too have never seen Jesus, but yet Jesus has seen us and addresses us, and what we see in the centurion is the reality of how hope changes his life. How, what hope looks like, because he has never seen Jesus, he has heard about him, but there is a characteristic of hope in his faith, there is hope in his life, there is hope that changes everything that Jesus responds to. And it's this moment where we are suddenly, intentionally in the text, intentionally in this story with Jesus, and I think what Luke is holding out for us is that we can hope in an unseen Christ. We can hope in an unseen Christ, even though we have not seen him, even though the centurion does not see Jesus. He hopes in Jesus, 
And I think that we are supposed to see ourselves in this text and begin to see how hope, how we can hope in the unseen Christ, how we can hope in Him and know Him. So, if that's kind of the premise, if that's kind of the groundwork of what's going on in this passage, what are we learning about hope here? What's going on in this passage that we can learn about hope, that we can learn about what hope is? Because if I know the word hope is never used here, but I think you'll see with me that hope is at the heart of what's going on in the centurion's heart and what we can be learning and be enjoying. So what does it mean to hope? What does that mean? We're going to see, we're just going to look at this, and I think that we will see that hope appeals, hope submits, and hope receives. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to go, um, I don't know if you've ever read through a, uh, a book about the Bible or a Bible commentary, but sometimes they have these little verses, and then they drop little letters after the verses, and sometimes you might think, what exactly does 6a mean? It just means that there, is a, there are two sentences in a verse. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at verse 1, go to 6a. So you see that little a there? That's what I'm talking about. So, after Jesus had finished all of, this, all of his sermon, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. So here we have this introduction to the centurion. that We don't have a name for him. We don't know... We don't know his address. We know that he lives in Capernaum. We've been in Capernaum before. We're going back to Capernaum. Who is this centurion? I'm not sure that he was a Christian. I'm not sure he was a believer. Because believers in that time would have been called God-fearers. But he certainly has a high regard for the Jews. He certainly loves the Jewish nation and loves who they are and has a certain generous disposition to him. Because as a centurion, he would have been loaded. He would have had a lot of money. And the way he chooses to spend his money is to build them their synagogue. I mean, this is not something that you would have done just kind of like, okay, here's a few dollars on the street, let me help you out. This is a concerted architecture masterpiece that he is giving his money to that my understanding is the foundations of it still reside to this day. So he uh, is very wealthy and is very generous and he is not a Jew which is important to know that he is not a Jew, but yet still he loves the Jewish nation and he is generous towards them. And so you can imagine Jesus is gaining a lot of notoriety at this point. Jesus has done some rather spectacular miracles. Jesus has said some rather spectacular things. And the centurion hears about Jesus. He hears who he is and he thinks there's something about him that might be able to help me because this servant that is highly valued, I don't know, uh, he might have been his accountant because that strikes me as being a highly valuable <laughs> individual, right? somebody who runs the books, because that's something that I cannot do. I, <laughs> he was highly valuable, and so on the one hand, he would have respected and honored and would have understood a certain sense of who Jesus was, and yet... I don't know if it's me, but it just seems to me that 
On the other hand, his request gets a bit bungled, right? So I think what the centurion said is, I need some help. My guy's about to die. Can you guys go and talk to Jesus? And then in the process of that appeal, getting to Jesus, the Jews add all of this stuff about how he is worthy to have you do this for him. You see that, what's going on there? There, uh, He's saying, verse 4, the Jews are pleading with Jesus earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Uh, I do not think that that is what was in the centurion's original request, because he goes on to talk about how he was unworthy. Right? He... So there's something here where it is, it seems slightly confusing that he wants Jesus' help, he has this need, Jesus can help him on the one hand, and yet the, the, uh, the request gets a bit uh, confusing. And yet, Jesus still hears him. Jesus hears the request. He responds to the request. And at times... I don't know if you ever have this sense that if I just prayed right, if I just asked God for help in the right way, God would hear me. Or, the reverse side of that, God didn't answer my prayer, maybe I did not ask the right way. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, if that's ever something that you've questioned, if you have prayed for years for something to happen, if you have asked God to change something in your life and it has not occurred, and maybe you get this sneaking suspicion that really uh, the, I'm the problem. I didn't, I didn't ask right. My prayer bounced off the ceiling. didn't go the way I wanted. And I, I, think, I think one of the ways that we see hope appealing to Jesus here is that Jesus responds even when the request is a bit wrong-headed or a bit confusing or a bit off. Jesus, Jesus hears the request and he sees within the request this man who has a desperate need for his help and he sees the heart of the request even though the words of the request that have come to Jesus are totally off. Because this man has nothing to commend him to Jesus. He has nothing to ask for him. He's not even of the same nationality. He's not even of the chosen people of God at this point. And yet, Jesus hears the request, and he goes to him. You see that there? Verse 6, the first part of verse 6, Jesus went with them. Jesus responds to them. And I think one of the things that we can hold out for hope here, hope appeals because of who Jesus is, not because of the substance of how great we are. Jesus loves to respond. Jesus loves to respond to our need for him. And the, you get this sense, there's a great little quote here from Richard Sibbs. He's a, a Puritan from the old great days where they spoke great English, and we don't speak great English today, but they spoke great English. And he had this great phrase, God can pick sense out of a confused prayer. God can pluck sense out of a confused prayer. God can pull out of our confused hopes, out of our confused sense of what we are wanting and desiring in this life, out of our desire for help and yet the wrong words being used, God can, as it were, in the, heat, in the haystack of our prayer, pull the needle of sense out of it. God can reach down and see what's the real heart here? What is the need? What is the true appeal? You see, Jesus, Jesus could have said, 
are you talking about worthy? Worthy? Jesus could have responded like that. Jesus could have said, what are you talking about worthy? This guy, he's a centurion. He's a, he's a military professional with a hundred men under him um, of the very nation that's subjecting the Jewish people to oppression. Jesus could have responded like that. He could have pulled the political card. And if anybody could have pulled the political card and been right, it could have been Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't. He responds. He says, I will go with you. Yes, he's, I will respond to this man's appeal for hope, his hope that appeals to me, his hope that's in desperate need. I will respond. You see, Jesus responds not because of the value that this man has or even the value of his servant, but because of who Jesus is, that he loves when people look to him. If we have confused hopes, if we have confused prayers, if we, if we pray the same prayer and it does not get responded to, we know that it's not because Jesus did not hear it because it was wrong-headed or mistaken, but Jesus is responding in a way that shows us who he is. Do you, do you need comfort? Do you need grace to continue to appeal to Jesus? Are there things that you have been praying about? Are there things that you have been questioning? Are there things that you have longed for that he has not responded to. I think one of the things that we can learn about hope here is that Jesus, Jesus loves to respond. And he might not answer the substance of the exact words that you have for him, but he, he has heard you. He is coming to you. He is coming near, just as Jesus is responding to the centurion. So if we... We are seeing that hope appeals to Jesus as this man appeals to Jesus. The next thing we're going to see here, start picking up back in six, chapter uh, verse six, is that hope submits. So let's pick up back in verse six. When he, that is Jesus, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, "Lord, Lord, do not trouble yourself." For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd and followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So we have here, you have the initial appeal through the Jews where, Jesus, uh, where the centurion appeals to Jesus, Jesus, I need help. Would you please come and help me? And then he hears, he gets a report. He's on his way. Uh, he's, he's on his way to your house to help you. And he suddenly has this moment, this crisis moment. I don't think this is sort of like some sort of uh, cultural thing where they would kind of like, you know, do this sort of like play, like a polite play of things, you know, like, oh, don't come to my house, but please come to my house, like sort of like that sort of thing. I don't think it was that sort of thing. I think it legitimately like, no, no, really, I didn't mean for you to come to the house. I really just wanted you to help me with my, my servant. And what we see in his response is this extraordinary amount of humility because he says, Lord, contrary to what the Jews have just told you that I'm worthy, I am absolutely unworthy. I recognize that you are, you are on a status that I am not on. I'm not sure that he's saying Lord as he, he's acknowledging him as God. I think he is just acknowledging, 
Lord, you are in a separate category, and I am unworthy for you to come under my roof. I, I, that's why I didn't come to you. I, I, didn't want, I didn't want to put you in an awkward position. I want you to have the freedom to say no. You can say no. I know what it's like to be under authority. I know what it's like to be under authority because I have people who are under me, and I tell them to do whatever I want, um, and they do it. And Jesus sees in this man's response something that I think is at the heart of this passage because this man, he was, he was, in, he was analyzing Jesus' life. He was analyzing what he knew about Jesus, and he saw that Jesus had power over physical, the physical world. Jesus had healed men who were leprous that nobody had ever done before. You know, getting rid of leprosy was kind of a big deal. Only God could do that. And then Jesus had been teaching these marvelous things about the goodness and glory of God. He had been teaching the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus had been saying wonderful things like, Blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And he would go on to talk about the glory of knowing God and building one's life based on the glory of God. So Jesus has a moral authority this man recognizes. He has, a, has, has an authority over the created world. He can do anything to the world that he wants. He can turn uh, withered hands into strong hands with a word. And then with his word, he makes clear the glory of God and the moral universe that we live in, what it means to know God and delight in him and know him. So the, the centurion is analyzing this and recognizing this man's authority is absolutely complete. He has complete authority over everything. He is recognizing that Jesus has authority and he recognizes that Jesus has such an authority that he doesn't have to be present to make something happen. If it's his word that makes something happen, if it's his word that heals, if it's his word that teaches, it is Jesus himself that is the authority, not merely his presence. Because some of this could be, you can kind of look at this life of Jesus and think, you know what, this guy's got some good magical powers, right? He does some sort of like magical voodoo thing where he's on scene and he like, makes things happen, and it's some sort of you know, magic sauce that he does behind his back and pulls it out. But this man recognizes that Jesus' authority doesn't have to be present to be true. He's, he doesn't have to be on the scene to have authority. And that, that is what Jesus is amazed at. Because Jesus, up to this point, everybody that has responded to Jesus has had a physical interaction or a present interaction with Jesus. It's not hard to believe that Jesus has authority over the created world when he, in front of your very eyes, makes a man who was born crippled stand up and walk. It's not hard, right? You just watch it happen and you respond, right? It's not hard to want to submit to Jesus when you're sitting under his teaching and recognizing this man like he went up on the mountain, like a second Moses speaks with God's authority. It's not hard to do that when you're in his very presence. But there is a level of faith that this man demonstrates because he has not seen Jesus face to face. He has not seen him, and yet he responds to Jesus. He responds with faith in who Jesus is, and he banks his life on it. He banks hope that, that what is true about Jesus, what he's heard about him, is true for him. You know, if these stories are true, Jesus has authority to command the world and to obey him without being on sight. There's nothing necessary about Jesus' presence. You see, hope, hope submits to Jesus because he's the authority. 
Jesus has authority over the universe because his miracles are true. There's nothing necessary about his presence. And the same thing about his teaching, Jesus, who he can't see, commands the moral universe and reveals the goodness of God. It is his word that he requires. All he needs to do is command it. Whatever Jesus commands, it's done. You see, hope submits to Jesus because Jesus is in control. Jesus is the one who commands. Jesus is the one that everything is submitted to. And see, that's where, see, that's the moment. That's the moment where we are turned and addressed by the text because that's us, right? None of us have ever, I mean, unless you want to come and talk to me afterwards, had a physical encounter with Jesus. None of us have ever seen Jesus face to face, right? None of us have ever seen him. All we have is God's word to us about who he is. We see Jesus here, but we have never seen Jesus face to face. We've never seen him. Like all these characters in these stories who had these interactions with Jesus, they see him face to face, but basically everybody since the ascension of Christ has never seen Jesus face to face. This is us. This is the, we, ever since then, for the last, what, 2,000 years almost, everybody has looked to the Bible to see who Jesus is, but we've never seen him face to face. We've never seen him, and that's where we are in this passage. This centurion never sees Jesus. He never meets him. Even after, I mean, after Jesus says this interaction with Jesus, and Jesus concedes to grant his, his request, he never meets Jesus face to face. That's This is the hope that submits. This is a hope that submits totally to Jesus because he has heard everything about Jesus. He recognizes what that means and he banks everything on it. He is submitted totally to who Jesus is. Can I trust him? Can I I lean on him? Well, if that's true, yes. If If what is revealed about who Jesus is, if these stories are true, if these words about him are true, if his teaching is true, if his resurrection is true, Yes, I can bank on Jesus. I can trust in him and lean on him. If he's the authority, everything in my life, all my hopes and dreams, rest and submit to him. You see, that, to bank on Jesus, to submit to him, is, that's what we're seeing in the centurion. He, he is absolutely, absolutely trusting in Jesus. And I think that, I think for us, that this element of banking on Jesus is what is held out for us in submitting, in our hopes submitting to Jesus. Because I think that's what we do with the promises of God. We were actually, you know, it's, the, the Holy Spirit does some very amazing things, and that's, I think, what, what uh, Bill was leading us in this, before we started worshiping, and in our songs even, banking on God's promises for us. You know, you can imagine it like this. God's promises are like a check, right? We... Um, if, you get a, if you get a paycheck for your work, as slightly where the analogy breaks down, because we don't work for anything to get God's promises, but God's promises are like a check that's given to us freely. And we take this check, and the only value this check has, the, the value, the money, monetary value on it, is, is only true, is only valuable based on how much the bank counts it for, right? So... Thankfully, in America, if it says $52 on it, the bank says that's worth $52. We take the check to the bank, and we cast the check in, and we get the money for it. God's promises, God's promises are like a free check. God's promises that we, we get them, and we have this promise, I'm good for you, I'm good to you, and I will never forsake you. 
I carry the weak and weary like a lamb in a shepherd's arms. I love those who are broken and contrite. We can take those promises to God himself, and God responds to those promises by proving them true. We take the promises of God and we bring them to him. We say, God, if these promises are true about you, then you will be proven true in answering them. And God, in his grace, loves to respond to his promises. Now, I'm not saying take a promise of, like, God's going to give me $1,000 and go take that to God. That's not the promises of God. The promises of God are grace for the weary, grace for the needy, grace for people like the centurion who are totally casting themselves, banking themselves on who God is and trusting in Him. So let me just take, let me just take one promise with you and we'll see what we do with it. So Hebrews 13, verses 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here we have, the, we have this promise. We have this promise for people like us. Are you weak? Are you weary? Do you need God's help? Are there areas in your life that you want to grow in? I want to grow in holiness, but it doesn't seem like I can ever change in this area. I, it seems like I'm totally stuck in my work. My marriage is not growing. My spouse is not changing. My circumstances need help. The family member refuses to repent. Nothing seems to change. Do you, feel, do you feel the weight of that situation? Maybe that's where you are at. And so here is this promise that the God of peace would equip you with everything good that you may do His will. That does not mean the circumstances change. It does not mean that even the thing that you are praying about will be answered. But the God of peace would equip you to please Him, to obey Him. That He comes into your situation and gives you what you need, not to change the circumstances, but so that you can be at peace with Him in the situation. So that He can equip you with everything you need. What is the grace that you need to be forgiving? What is the grace that you need to be patient and forbearing? What is the grace that you need to be filled with hope? What is the grace that you need to trust Him amidst the doubts? Trust Him with the anxiety. Trust Him when things do not change. You see, you can't see this God. This, this promise is banking on a God you cannot see. Just like the centurion who could not see Jesus, but heard about who He was, heard the promise, and banked everything on it. You cannot see God, and yet God is here. Christ is true and real. He has been raised from the dead, and you can take this promise that God will help you. He will equip you for the very situation that you need help with. For the very moment in your life, this last week that has been struggle and trial, for the very moments coming in the days ahead that will continue to be a struggle or trial, God himself will equip you to bank on him, to trust him with all the grace that you need. See, this isn't, this isn't small stuff. This is the big things of life. 
And God responds to us the way that Jesus responds to this man. It's not because this man was deserving in this story. It's not because he had paid for the church building to be built. He didn't buy God's favor. Jesus responded to this man because that's who Jesus is. He is a gracious, merciful, loving king. You see, Jesus could have corrected them and said, no, 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 you're not even, you're not even just barely unworthy. You are of the guard that will put me to death. He could have said that. But Jesus chose to be gracious to this man and to respond to him because of that is who Jesus is, not because of who this man is. Jesus heard these things and he marveled at him. This is one of two spots in the entire Gospels where Jesus marvels. I think that it is a, t- a hint that Jesus loves our faith. Even though we cannot see him, we still love him. And we treasure him and we submit. Our hope is submitted to him. Jesus treasures our faith in us and him, even when we cannot see him. As our hope is submitted, Jesus, as we can submit to him, even though we have not seen him, he treasures our faith. He holds us in his arms. He treasures us and loves to give us grace. He says to us, come to, come to me, come I love this faith. Do you need help? I've got what you need. Everything you need, I can help you. This is, the, this is the Savior holding out His arms to us because He loves, even though we cannot see Him, He loves to respond to faith, to hope that is postured in submission to Him, that, that submits to Him even though He is not seen. Do you, do you bank on this Jesus? Are you banking on him? Are you taking his promises and his word, saying, Jesus, if these are true, you're all all I've got, and these are all I've got to receive from you. Do you want more of him? Can you submit your hope to him? Are you banking on him? So, as this centurion banks on Jesus and submits to him, so he not only appeals to Jesus, his hope appeals to Jesus, his hope submits to Jesus, but we see here in verse 10, there's this, first, this last thing about hope is that hope receives. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. You know what's interesting here is that this man says to Jesus, he says, by your word, this can happen. Only give, the, only give the command and it can happen. And then, you know, we actually don't even have Jesus' command. We don't have Jesus' command for this man to be healed. But the, but the, but the healing happens. And, and potentially, it's just another tip that Jesus doesn't actually have to say anything for his will to be done. I'm not sure. But Jesus does respond to him. He responds and and the healing happens without Jesus ever having to come on the spot. Jesus responds. He answers the request. And though Jesus has never been seen on the scene, and though we have never seen Jesus, I think what we are seeing here is that Jesus still sees this man, and he still sees us. Because at the heart of what is going on here, at the heart of this brokenness needing Jesus, at the heart of what Jesus sees in this man's life and what Jesus sees in our lives, is that Jesus sees us ultimately 
He sees our need. He meets our need. Not because Jesus is giving out free goodies, but because Jesus himself sees our deep need and goes to the cross that we have never seen, but by faith we see him on the cross, where he sees us most clearly, where he sees the wrath of God that we so deeply deserve, the wrath of God that would have rejected us as unworthy, the wrath of God that would have seen us receive the total weight of what we truly deserved, be the outcast of God for all eternity. But Jesus saw our deepest need. Jesus saw not merely this man's momentary need of the servant being healed or this momentary need of him being reconciled to the nation of God's people, but he sees at the heart of who we are, at the heart of this man, at the heart of your life, your need for God's goodness and grace and forgiveness and mercy and Jesus saw you from the cross, separated from God, being reconciled by His very death on your behalf. So that as you have not seen Him, He sees you from the throne of His cross, exercising total grace that you did not deserve, establishing the ground of your true hope in Him, because everything that would separate you from God, He saw clearly and died in your place, and died so that you might be seen without the wrath of God, so that you could receive truly hope in the living God, and ultimately, so that one day, you will see God face to face. You will see Jesus face to face without any fear, without any rejection, without any need for hope anymore. Just I'm, I, As I was reading through this, as I was thinking about you, as I was thinking about what does it mean to have faith in the unseen Christ, my mind turns to 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. You see, we, we see who Jesus is by faith and we hope in the unseen Christ. We hope in Him because of who He is, because of what's true about Him, because He has promised to be gracious, because He has promised to be good, because He has promised to be a shepherd who cares for weak sheep like us, because He has been a father to the fatherless, because He has been a brother to the weak brother of us. Because who Jesus is, we see Him by faith and we hope in Him. We hope all the promises about him are true. And the promises about him that are true will be that he will come once again and raise the dead and break this broken world into a new and restored creation where we will see him face to face and see him not at a distance, not having to send people out to say, don't come to my house, but we will sit at table with him and we will enjoy his love and fellowship forever and ever and ever and ever, we will see him. We will see him. See, the centurion never saw Jesus face to face. This centurion never, even though he hoped in Jesus, even though he banked on Jesus, everything about him trusted in Jesus, even though we are in this passage with him, hoping in Jesus that we have not seen, I don't know if the centurion ever turned to Christ, ultimately. But those who do hope in Christ, even though we, 
even though we hope in an unseen Christ, we will, we will see him. I am looking forward to that day where we see him face to face. We will see Jesus. So what do we learn about hope here? We, we learn that we can hope in the unseen Christ. In this passage, here we are, Luke addresses us. Jesus addresses us. You can hope in me. You can hope in Christ. And one day, your hope, even though he is unseen now, one day your hope will be made into real sight. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have saved us in Christ, and though we do not see him now, Lord, Lord, how we do treasure and love him. Father, we pray that you would send your spirit now upon us and help us to cast our lives upon him, to trust him, to bank on him. And God, we ask that you would stir fresh hope in our souls, in our unseen Christ. In him we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.